Welcome to this edition of At The Mic. I'm your host, Keith Malinak. This week, I sit down with a real estate agent who in a previous life was the lead guitarist in a rock and roll band. That conversation with George Huntley of the Connells is next. But first, I want to talk to you about coffee. American Pride Roasters coffee, to be exact, in the Dolly Madison blend, available right now. There's so much to love about Dolly Madison, who, of course, was married to America's fourth president, and she was the first official first lady of the United States. Okay, so you ready for some Dolly Madison fun facts? Here we go. Her first name was actually Dorothea, but she had been called Dolly from a very young age, and it stuck. And get this. Dolly Madison, the first American to respond to a telegraph message. She began the tradition of the Easter egg roll on the White House lawn. And just so much to this wonderful lady, this wonderful figure in American history, Dolly Madison. So in honor of Dolly and James and their love of French cuisine, the Dolly Madison is a French roasted blend of South American beans with raspberry flavoring mixed in to add a dash of dessert flavor. You really should try this blend if you want a dessert coffee from the people who do coffee best. APRCoffee.com. And don't forget to use promo code ATM at checkout for 10% off your entire purchase. That's APRCoffee.com. You're listening to At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. George Huntley is my guest this week on At The Mic. What a thrill it was for me to travel to Raleigh, North Carolina, sit down right there in his home and break out a couple of microphones and have a good conversation with just a great guy. I look forward to all of us getting to know him as we sit down on At The Mic. Sitting in the living room of one George Huntley here in Raleigh, North Carolina. I am so excited. I'm going to try not to be a Connell's fanboy geek here during this interview, which I guess really I owe a great thanks to one individual for making this happen because <laughs> I, um, I had invited you through this random email a long time ago that... Quite honestly, I would have dismissed it too. This crazy guy saying, hey, you want to talk about the Connells? Anyway, so George Huntley, uh, thanks for being a part here today, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, Ronna Broadwell uh-huh. in Roxburgh, North Carolina. And <laughs> she actually called me after your Pat Gray episode where you all were talking about... The greatest guitarist of all time, which of course, George Huntley is among them. <laughs> no. <laughs> But she gave me a heads up about uh, what a great guy you were, and uh, and so that was the beginning of this. And um, thanks, Rana. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for reaching out, contacting George, which made him go back and check his email and go, oh, "I never replied to that." So anyway, that's great. We've got a lot to cover, man. Let's uh, let's go to the very beginning of your life. Let's go to your childhood. You were born and raised in Raleigh, North Carolina, where we are today. Yep. I know you through. The Connells music band that I am such a, a huge fan of and have been over the years. And we're going to obviously talk about that time of your life. But let's go back to the beginning. You're the youngest of five siblings. That's right. Okay. So now did they all stay here locally as well or are they kind of? Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, they did. Oh, that's got to be great for like getting together with family and it stuff is. like that. It is. Yeah, we're very, we're very close. Yeah. yeah. 
All right, man. So you grew up here. You've stayed here. You've seen, obviously, indescribable change probably here in your community. Um, Take us back to your earliest memory growing up. It has something to do with (laughs) being, what, in the back of a station wagon? Yeah. Yeah, we used to have this um, one of those station wagons where the door opened wide from the side and right, yeah. and being the baby mm-hmm. I had the back seat and my next brother Wilson would probably be back there with me tormenting me in some way <laughs> and uh, I just remember dad opening the door and me standing there and looking at him his arms were probably full with stuff you know and I just remember standing <laughs> there looking at him and him walking in. I think the reason I remember it, the reason I call it an early memory, is because there was probably something in that moment where I had to figure out how to get out of that station wagon. Mm-hmm. And obviously I did. Right. Well, I wonder if there was some <laughs> sort of level of trauma, even just for being that young, because it just seems like more often than not, when people share their earliest memories here on At The Mic, there is that element of trauma which has somehow burned it into their memory. And I'm not saying that you were left there in a traumatic state, but just as a young little guy yeah. in the back of the, of the thing, trying to figure yeah. out how to get down, you know, maybe that's why it imprinted on you. Well, you know, in the pecking order, being the baby with all those kids and only two parents, you know, mm-hmm. there is that element of the, you know, always kind of being behind everybody, mm. always being the last one. And, you know, and, and I think, you have to get some distance from that part of your life to realize how much it affected who you become as an adult. Do you think that that being so young and maybe that's just one experience, but maybe there was a lot of times where you just kind of had to figure it out on your own and did it make you maybe more independent being such a... Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And, younger? Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, one thing I can, I can truthfully say that... Uh, that I remember just being alone a lot, you know, that mm-hmm. there was when everybody went off to school, you know, uh, I just remember there was a lot of free time. And, you know, I remember that uh, my playtime was spent a lot of times just writing little melodies in my head. And I, I always remember that feeling of did did I make that up or where did I hear that? You huh. know, and. I still remember this little song that I wrote when, you know, I was just learning how to talk. That is awesome. So you've had music in your veins from the very beginning. Was your family, your parents musical? Well, my middle brother, Neil, was very musical. And my dad wanted to be a musician. He was a writer, but he wanted to be a musician. He was kind of a PR man with a with a with a you know he had a little newspaper column called Small Talk that he mm. wrote for local small town newspapers. And he was a he was a storyteller. And and you know we found out we learned about him later on in life that he wanted always wanted to be a musician. And wow. so when those Lowry organs came out in the seventies. You know, with the preset drum, the uh-huh. you know, with all those. <laughs> yeah, I had one of those. Yeah, baby. <laughs> I wanted yeah. to be a musician. <laughs> yeah, and he'd sit, he'd get up early in the morning while everybody's still asleep, put his headphones on. Oh, and, that's and, really cool. And I have a, another memory of him of watching him sitting there with his back turned, with his headphones on, teaching himself how to play the organ. 
and he's like sitting there playing like please release me let me go you know and and he's playing it and looking at it. he's got one hand doing the chord and one hand doing the melody and he's just sitting there and there's this thought that comes over me at the time Oh, I could scare him so bad. Right oh. I could walk up behind him and just goose him good. But I didn't have that. I, there was something pure about the moment. And, and I checked myself and yeah. I didn't do it. And But I just remember thinking, you know, he... Um, he really wanted. He really wanted that and made it happen. Brought brought that instrument into a house full of kids, you know, and we we loved it. That's great, man. I we did lunch here before we sat down to record, and I told you I was going to ask you this. Uh, so I hope you'll tell this story again of Chi Chi the monkey, because you had a pet monkey growing yeah. up. Yeah, that is so fun. How, yeah. well, first of all, where? Where where do you go to buy a monkey? Doctor Pet Center, baby. Well, <laughs> let me tell you the the uh, the Doctor Pet Center. That's D O K T O R. Was in Cameron Village, but the the shopping center formerly known as Cameron Village. Okay, and it um, they just one year right before Christmas, their little window shop. There were all these squirrel monkeys running around in there. And th this is back in the day before we knew how they captured these monkeys. Oh. We didn't know the trauma hmm. of the trappers, you know. Gotcha. So there's these little monkeys in there. And my big brother, Wilson, who was closest uh, to me in age growing up, um, he went to mom and dad and said, you know, I really want a monkey for Christmas. I want, I will never ask you for anything ever again. Right. Oh, we've all tried that one, right? <laughs> yeah. And my dad told my mom, well, you know, I always wanted a monkey. Oh, wow. And so oh, no, Wilson you got the monkey. Found a soft spot. But it took three tries. The first one was a silverback. A silverback squirrel monkey. Imagine that. Wait, how? Okay. He was... He he could hold the cage oh. and just rattle it, and the whole cage. They brought this. They brought him. You know, they send them out the door in these little canary cages. You know, and he could make that thing rattle, and he'd look at you, and his face would contort, no, and his teeth no. would. And so we took him back. We yeah. took the silverback back. The second monkey we got had a a, a compound fracture. In her little hind leg, it was awful. It's like, how did nobody realize this monkey was uh. mortally wounded? And then the third monkey we got was Chi Chi. Uh huh. And Chi Chi immediately just became, you know, the the a member of the family. Yeah. And we all had a relationship with her. <laughs> we had her for six years until Wilson went off to college, and and that's when Daddy said, you know, son, you cannot leave that monkey here <laughs> <laughs> so where did she end up going that's the best part of the story uh -huh. i guess it was called the durham zoo back then <laughs> and so they had a bunch of uh, squirrel monkeys and so we took chi chi over there and when we went back to see her a year later she had a baby on her on oh. her back and we knew it was chi chi because she had this right over one of her eyes she had a little birthmark kind of a thing okay and so she was very recognizable in a big crowd of squirrel monkeys. And we saw her, and she kept kind of like looking at us like, you know, are you all here? But there was this monkey, like a little baby crawling around on her. That is know? so sweet. 
just doing what she used to do to us. And she know. recognized you, you think? No, or? I don't know. Okay. We, we stood there and we, we didn't get closer than maybe 20 feet. Okay. And Wilson and me and Wilson and mom, probably maybe Neil were there. And we, we stood there saying, do you think she recognizes us? And we were like, oh, yeah, she's smart. Uh-huh. She was a very smart uh, That's cool. animal. That's really cool. Yeah. I, I love the story, though, of you were telling me where she got on top of the TV. Oh, yeah. <laughs> tell us that story. Well, we Wilson and I used to sleep on this big sun porch, which had no heat and no air it was an old sun porch and it was just a bunch of it was a sleeping porch you know it had a bunch of windows and uh so we had a little black and white zenith tube tv that Mm. was up there and chi chi had this uh, a neighbor of ours built this really big tall cage with you know chicken wire and and several little climbing things in it but when wilson and i were up there watching tv we'd let her out and one of her favorite spots to sit was on top of that zenith which was nice and warm right she's tropical you know Uh and uh so she i remember we were sitting there on the couch in our blankets you know watching something and she she's sitting there and she's kind of going to sleep you could see her go to sleep on top of the tv she'd get nice and warm and she just uh, and all of a sudden the tv goes and Chi Chi jumped, you know, a country mile, oh. ran around the room going, yay! Yeah, like yay, what just yay. happened? And what had happened was she had peed on <laughs> oh. that hot tube and it oh. blew the TV. It blew the, it, it seemed like it blew the TV up, but all it did was just shut the TV down because it, it was pee pee hitting the hot tube. <laughs> And man, uh, it took about ten minutes for that thing to warm back up, man, and it re- all returned back to normal. But we were uh, boy, that's good. Yeah, that's good. And Chi-Chi ended up uh, getting out at one point, right? And she went did. on a little tour of the town. Yeah, I think you know there were probably several times Chi-Chi got out, but if Wilson wasn't home, because Wilson was her man, uh-huh. main man. Uh, if Wilson wasn't home, Chi-Chi, I'm sure Chi-Chi was going out in the city of Oaks looking for him. And so she just started going and she couldn't stop. And she made it over to, you know, North Carolina State campus where- Oh, NC State? Yeah, NC State, (laughs) go pack. And there was a dorm over there, I think, where some boys were in their room, window open, watching a football game, eating popcorn. And all of a sudden this monkey comes in their window and is eating popcorn, watching football with them. So back in those days, there was this AM radio station, um, WPTF. Uh-huh. You could call in as a talk radio, and these fellas called in and said, you're not going to believe this, but there's a monkey in our dorm room. And if anybody out there is missing a monkey, <laughs> here's, you know, here's how to get us. Here's where we are. <laughs> so one of our neighbors knew that Chi-Chi had gotten out that day, and he was a teenage boy in our neighborhood, and he he came down and got mom, and together they went and got Chi Chi. We got Chi Chi back before Wilson got home. He never even had to endure any of the that is trauma. Great. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So tell us about someone very meaningful in your life, Robert McMillan. Oh, Robert. Well, Robert is um, is a hero of mine. He'll be. Uh, God, he'll be he'll be 99 next week. We're a week from today. He'll be 99 years old. That's great. And he was 
he came into my life as the father of my first best friend, Lewis. Lewis a year younger than me, but a year taller than me. But Robert was my scoutmaster, Troop 306. <laughs> And um, then, he, you know, through the years, he became, um, you know, my Sunday school teacher as an adult. Uh -huh. He taught that Sunday school class till, till the pandemic when they stopped doing that um, up at Pullen Baptist Church, which was the church that he had spent his whole life going to. So he was effectively your teacher from being a kid up until the last Til couple now. years. That is amazing. Till now, yeah. And and we, you know, you know, I don't see him as much. The the pandemic sort of broke our rhythm, yeah. but um we keep up. The other the other day my brother Roy and I went over to the McMillan house and played guitar with that group of people that was brought to us from the Robert McMillan class of people. There was a, a an attorney in the area named um Wade Smith, who was a great guitar player as well as a great attorney. And and we just kind of sat around with Duncan McMillan. May was there. Lewis came by. And we sat around and just played some music. And oh, nice. I, I was actually crashing the party because this group <laughs> of people, they're, they're a little bit older than me, but they've been, it's a little band called Road Hard, and they just get together and do, you know, some music. So, yeah, and you refer to Robert as the Atticus Finch of your childhood. That's awesome. That's a great descriptor right there. Well, I'll tell you, I went on a fantastic, I think I want to I say it was a 400-mile canoe trip. Uh, the summer I was 15, and we went on this canoe trip. It, we started in the Lumbee River, and we, we went all the way down to Georgetown, South Carolina. So it was a a windy circuitous path that took us 10 days and there were all kinds of adventures on that trip but you know the people there were some people along the way that kind of harassed us a little bit it was robert another adult and three teenage boys and there was a group of guys that were harassing us at this one stop and i just had this confidence that robert knew what he was doing uh, when the people came back and started driving their car around our tent that night, uh, spinning out around our tents, they were just hooping it up and hollering. And I could hear Robert's voice. He was saying, stay in your tent. And, uh, you know, eventually they drove off. They, they were messing with us earlier and they came back. And, but, you know, I, I, I just, I think I just always felt like he had this, um, aura about him of security in who he was and you know his little sayings like you know he you just tell robert something just as far-fetched as anything and he'd say there's nothing new under the sun you know and there was there was this this feeling of like that's new and fresh but yet it's very similar to something that's happened before right. you know and, yeah, I don't know. His his uh, his interpretation of the Bible was real instructive for hmm. me and my brothers. My brother Neil and brother Roy, we uh, we all attended his class as an, as adults, and my mom went there too. So, yeah, Robert, I my hat goes off to Robert every chance I get.
That's so great. It feels like today in 2022 that men like Robert, that you, the way you described him, it just seems that those kind of individuals are really lacking in society now. And so that's really great to hear that well, you and, had that. And his age group, his, you know, world, he was a Marine in, in World War II, and he was followed in the footsteps of his father as a lawyer. And to go through that time, that, that era, the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, 80s, uh, and in a, in, a, in a southern town, there had to be many, many challenges as a white attorney where you're actually, you know, facing the right thing to do versus what might be the convenient thing to do. Hmm. And that's why I call them the Atticus Finch. Because I, I see. So he actually just had uh, civil rights type cases? There, well, there were high profile defense cases that'd be all over the paper. And then the, the case would end and we'd go on a camping trip because Robert needed to get away. Right. So that's when we would go up to the Appalachian Trail and take a hike and he would just leave us. <laughs> he would just leave us, you know. And then in the distance, we'd hear the, whoo! And we'd know that just, come on, keep coming. He's just he's just up the way, you know. That's so great. But he was he was an awesome teacher. He, uh-huh. he taught by example better than anybody I think I've ever known. That is so cool. So you were the class of 1984 at uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. That's right. You majored in biostatistics, which just reading that word makes my math-challenged head spin. So what was the college experience like for you, man? Well, you know, that's a, that's a period of my life where I think I felt, you know, I I, I felt like, you know, I had this, uh, everybody was telling me I had this math skill. And so back in the 70s when you were taking like the California achievement test in high school, you remember that? Mm-hmm. And they, you'd get the dialogue back and they'd say, oh, you'll make a great garbage man. You know, <laughs> you'll, you'll be a great house painter. And, and really those things were probably more in my, in my skill set. Huh. But I did have this little knack for, for math. I could, I could do math. I could learn it. And, and so what, back in those days, before you know, the World Wide Web and everything, there was, um, you know, everybody in this town was saying, well, you should be an engineer. And so I went to engineering school for a couple of years at UNC Charlotte. Hated it. Oh, my gosh, I hated it. And I always wanted to go to Carolina because my oldest sister and oldest brother, Nancy and Roy, went there. And so I always wanted to go to Carolina. So I got in my car one day and I went and met another childhood uh, mentor, a man named Jacob Kuhnman, who was a high school Sunday school teacher. And Jake Kuhnman and I had a great relationship. And I went in there and, and uh, he was, you know, in the School of Public Health at Chapel Hill. And I just went by to see him. I said, I'm, you know, I'm kind of looking for myself. And he gave me this book. It had nothing to do with nothing, or so I thought. <laughs> it was a book called Black Elk Speaks. You ever heard of Black Elk Speaks? Mm-mm. Well, it's about, a, it's about an Indian medicine man who... Um, has this really interesting story to tell. 
And the stories are about a series of dreams that he has. And I went home and I read this book and I thought, gee, I wonder why he gave me this. You know, because on the one hand, the book seems really depressing because this guy is having all these dreams about the demise of the Indian nation. But at mm. the same time, he's constantly looking for solutions to problems. He never gives up. He's constantly looking for solutions. And so I went I went back to see Jake and and told him, I said, you know, I really love that book, you know. And he said, um, I've been thinking about you too. And he said, I'm really glad you came back. I want there's somebody I want you to meet. So I went down and we went and talked to Craig Turnbull, who was, you know, at the School of Public Health and the Department of Biostatistics, and that was it. Uh, and I just I I joined in, you know, I lost a few credit hours because there was some stuff that wouldn't transfer. But, you know, I had a great time ending up at Carolina, which is where, you know, Mike and David Connell were and their brother, Mike's twin, John, who wasn't in the Connells with us, but who was uh, a, a very important part of my childhood. The Connell brothers and I grew up together. Uh -huh. They would come and see uh, they would come and see their grandparents in the summer in raleigh and so we grew up knowing each other but just in the summer you know when all fun's happening right uh, the connells are coming to town it's gonna be fun we're gonna play we're gonna play fugitive in the park we're gonna play quagmire football in the rain we're gonna uh, we had a great time with those guys uh, and um and they were at carolina because they were they were living in georgia going to school at mercer huh. and they transferred up to carolina Wow. And we just converged there, and we liked the same kind of music, had a great time. Michael Jordan was there, and, <laughs> you know, uh, Sam Perkins and James Worthy, and this goes on. Yeah, but it that was, was a, a time to time. be in North Carolina. A time to be in North Carolina. Wow. So that's really cool that you guys basically rekindled the, the summers uh, as kids. Yep. Now you're on a college campus, but now you've graduated, and you aren't getting into biostatistics. You guys are forming a band. Well, it didn't happen that fast. Okay. We, we, uh, I, know, I know there was an era where you've got to tell me, because when you wrote this in the email about you guys having a job as painters. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, that, I wish I had pictures of oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where I figured out I was a terrible painter. But uh, I was working as a biostatistician at a place called Family Health International in Research Triangle Park. It was a great job. And I was in the band at that time. This is, this is um, starting in December of 1984. Okay. And the Connells were already together as a four-piece without me. There was a guy named John Schultz playing drums and Mike and David and Doug McMillan singing. Mm -hmm. And I was doing just my solo thing getting up and just playing my songs, Buddy Holly songs, and just warming up for bands like Johnny Quest. And, and I mean, I probably only did three little solo shows, right? Okay. Um, but that the, the night that I did do a solo show at a fraternity house in Carolina was the night that I met Michael Jordan. But, <laughs> but anyway. That's fun. Yeah. That's well, cool. Well, I got through playing. You know, uh -huh. I had my Rickenbacker 12 string up there, and I'm playing. Lean, lean, lean. Set the guitar down. I see Michael in the back, 
And he looks around and he walks out the front door. I set my guitar down and I run out there and I go, hey, Michael. Uh-huh. And he turns around and he comes back and I'm thinking, oh, what do I say? Now what do I say? So I stuck my hand out and I said, Michael, I sure am proud of you. This is 1983, just one national championship. Right. And this is what Michael Jordan said to me, man. Honest to God, Michael said this to me. He said, thanks, man. <laughs> and <Okay>. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I mean, has he ever said that to He's you? He's not said any, anything to me. No, that's awesome. So from that moment on, whenever we, the Connells over the years, we play in Chicago, I'd always put him on the guest list. <laughs> and I'd go up there in these big, burly, you know, doorman at Club Metro or Club Vic or something. In uh, Chicago, I'd walk up there and I'd say, has Michael come yet? And these guys would always look at me like, go on. <laughs> I go, no, really. No, really. He might come because, you know, we're, we went to school together. But he never did. Never to show up? Know, oh, never come on. Nah, oh, that's nah, too bad. He, he just never got the word Not you that I know town. of. Right. That you, right. By then, he's probably in glasses, incognito, you know, hiding. Very I I rambled off where we were, but... No, I want to visit this era uh, with you and the Connells. I don't even know where to begin, though, because I know that you guys, and I've told you during lunch that I didn't become familiar with you until the summer of 1994. By then, you guys had been a band for a decade. You've already had huge success with the album titled Ring. And I guess I want to pick up right there because I think I've heard you in the past mention the enormous success you had with Ring. Mm-hmm. You ended up going on tour in Europe, especially. Mm-hmm. And on the surface, that would seem like, that's that's awesome. You guys toured in Europe, a, a band that had been playing college fraternities and college radio and uh, getting played on stations like 99X, uh, which is where I was introduced to you uh, in Atlanta, 99X. So now you guys are touring internationally. But I've heard you mention that that ended up being a bad thing for you, right? Well, that's a... Is that a harsh word? That's probably a a tough conclusion to start with. Okay. I mean... What I'll, what I'll tell you is, is that was about probably about a 16, 18 month period of promoting that record 74, 75, which was on the ring CD. Uh, it, I mean, it became a number one hit and we had never had any success like that. But, but at that time, we were all in our 30s. We were not babies anymore. Right. We'd been traveling all over the U.S. We had... We had done pretty well. I think Ring was like our fourth record, maybe. Darker Days, Bowling Heights, Fun and Games, Once Upon Wars is our fifth record. And so, you know, we were, we were mature guys. Most of the guys in the band were married. And so we go overseas and start uh, promoting this song. It's number one. And we'd never experienced being a royal before. But we were treated like royalty. In Germany, in, in, in France, in England, in you know, Sweden, in Norway, and Hungary. And um, you know, we we just traveled around and, and did all kinds of we even did children's TV shows. We played at these giant festivals 
I think we played for like 100,000 people at this outdoor sort of party down there on this piazza in Rome that's just shouting distance from the Colosseum where the Pope does his Easter service. There's this giant lawn, and we're playing there with Def Leppard, you know, and <laughs> And we're bigger than Madonna, you know? I mean, we got, like, the number one hit, right? Right, right. And, and you're on tour at the time, if I'm not mistaken, with 10,000 Maniacs, The Replacements. That was all before, before. yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, but you're right. It was about that time, uh -huh. yeah. And, and, and number one song in multiple countries. Multiple countries, yeah. yeah. In, fact, in fact, I only recently learned this. I'm sorry, I have to throw this in there because I, I'm not sure if you're even aware because I was stunned. The band Travis. So I want to tell you, if you go to the Wikipedia entry, for, for whatever reason, I was looking at one of their songs, Writing to Reach You. First single, take a, Writing to Reach You, background. Look at that. Look at that. The song was written by Fran Healy, who admitted that he had written this song while listening to 7475 on the radio. Wow. And you just randomly found that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I... Yeah, me interesting. And I I listen to a lot of Travis, and so for whatever reason, I was looking that song up. Anyway, oh, that's so interesting. So yeah. anyway, so so you're in Europe, and you're being treated like rock star royalty. Yep. And it it seems like, at least from my perspective, by the time Weird Food and Devastation was coming out in August of '96, I am the geek waiting for the music store to get the CD to come in. And it felt like, from my perspective, that things were really about to break for you guys. What was your mindset at that time? I think things were about to break up. Really? Weird, weird food and devastation was a comment. That, that phrase was a comment that Steve Potak made one day when we were riding down Describing the road Europe, in right? Munich. Yeah. <laughs> and on one side of the street, you had these, these cathedrals built in the middle ages you know and on the other side is built in the middle 1900s you know you got after before the war after the war but wow. it's because the bombs had destroyed right this side of the road but over here and so wow. it, we, the weird food was um you know just everybody was just fascinated with the aspic and you know fish and gelatin and stuff and we, <laughs> we would just get these we would get these deli trays you know because you know on your rider when you when you do a rock show you get the usual stuff you get beer and you get carrots and ranch dressing and stuff but in when you travel different european countries and this is before the european union you know uh -huh. everywhere you go it's a unique little deli tray and the one thing that we used to be fascinated with was the aspic so the weird food and devastation was uh you know something steve said and and Mike Connell thought that that was uh, pertinent, so he jotted it down <laughs> as a possible album title. We went back to the States, made this record at this studio called Pachyderm, which is in uh, Minnesota. Place was, if it, it was like, it was like making a record in a Stephen King novel. The, the, the place was, in my feeling, it was so it was such a strange environment you know they were they always joke with you when you go to a recording studio they always people always say things like it's haunted oh oh it's haunted oh. really it's haunted oh it's haunted <laughs> and you go where where is it haunted and they go well somebody drowned in the pool 
you know, oh, somebody got locked in the closet down there. This is before it was a recording studio, of course. And, you know, they're just like telling you this stuff. But then late at night, you know, when you're kind of through and you're wandering around decompressing, you know, wandering around, the lights are kind of out. You're like, whoa, what was that? You know, really? It was a spooky place and you were out in the country and you were on this river and the fish were like fish I'd never seen before, you know. And there was this picnic table on the river and I would sit out there and 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 just write, you know, and just make these notes. And um, I, I just remember feeling like this was the end of the road. And yet, even though that record, even now when I listen to that record, I hear a lot of... Uh, solo efforts on there it's a it's it's a it's a it's a collective of sort of solo material from the various band members really i mean we're playing on each other's songs but the ideas weren't clicking like they were on ring the record before on ring we were like fit we were like that was our most coordinated Uh band effort of anything we'd we'd done up to that point, I, I in my opinion, I listen, I listen, go back and listen to Ring now, and I go, whoa, I remember how easy those songs were. They just fell in, you know. Mike brought Slackjawed in, and we just like, boom, we just started writing it, like, dang, like that, you know. But Weird Food was not like that. Weird Food was a labor. We were we were tired. We were worn out. But we had tra- we had tragedy within the band, and uh, David's first wife had died. She she got sick, had brain cancer, died. She was lovely. Jennifer Lozier Connell was lovely. We all loved her, but David David we were in Europe and we got this phone call and it, and it's a long sad story. But the truth of it is, we all had to do without David for a a little brief period of time in Europe. And the hero, Tim Harper, our sound man, record producer, best friend, mentor, Budo, I mean, he was everything to us. He stepped up and played bass uh, for David. Hmm. And, uh, you know, there we are traveling around Europe, and and he's back there running sound, playing bass at the soundboard. Wow. Um, and, and there's actually on, on YouTube now, there's, uh, we did this little in, we did this Dutch little radio, live radio thingy and the camera pans at one point and you can see Tim playing an upright bass on 74, 75. And, and I look at that and I go, Whoa, look at, look at us, man. This is like 1995. We're, we're knowing what we know now about David being home. Um, probably missing us, but nursing his wife and us missing him terribly. Because in a lot of ways, you know, David was uh, the easiest member of the Connells to like. Right. I mean, I think everybody would agree with that. I get the sense as a fan, you know, just kind of seemed laid back and just kind of go with the flow. Yeah, he's he's so witty and so, you know, he's just so... uh, He's, David is just a wonderful guy. I've known him since we were like five and six years old, you know. He's, uh, t- to this day, I, I, David and I will just send each other a text every now and then. At the pure design is just to give the other a chuckle. 
you know, because we, we do know how to make each other laugh. And that's so, good. Yeah. That's good. So was any of the stress of that time induced by the label that you guys were under, TVT? Because as a fan, reading between the lines, it really seemed like they weren't doing, I guess, what they should to properly promote you guys. I don't know. Well, one of our... There, there's a, there's, there's a, there was a band called Firehose, and Mike Watt was the outspoken bass player. And we played with them one day, and he said, we were talking to him about our record label, and he's like, you know, you spend your whole career wanting to get on a record label, and then as soon as you get a record deal, you try to get off the record. Oh, no, no. So, so I would, I would, it would be wrong for me to say that I think that it had that big of an effect on how we wrote, how okay. we played, what we did. If anything, having a, a record label that we were sort of at odds with, if anything, it probably pulled us together. It might have made it a little bit easier to just keep going. Uh-huh. Uh, I was doing a solo record. I started working on a solo record during the making of Ring because I had I was very prolific at the time, but the Connells were not going to provide me very much room on the record because Mike was uh, the chief songwriter for the band. Doug was writing great songs. Peel was getting was writing songs. David was writing songs. Steve was getting ready to write some songs. <laughs> you know? And so. Um, you had all these great songs, and you needed an outlet for them. I needed an outlet for yeah. them, and um, and the album that you eventually created, Brain. That's right, that's right, and that was really tough because of of a lot of reasons. But that was going on. That time struck a deathly blow to that record, Brain Junk, because it it was sort of released when we were in Europe, so I could never travel for it. I could never support it. So I think I only did like maybe three or four little shows for it. I did. I used to do this um, with my buddy Johnny Irian. Johnny Irian and I used to do this thing, the Never Be Brothers, because he was a great singer, guitar player, and he was very much a tenor. So he could harmonize on top of my voice uh, wonderfully. And so he helped me do a little show up in um, in the CBGB's uh, arts. Uh, gallery, which was next door to CBGB's. This is a great story. Can I tell the story? Of course. So, which, by the way, by the way, as it relates to the um, the demos for Brain Junk, yeah, those are available on Spotify. And I mean, there's stuff that I hadn't ever even heard before yeah. associated with that. Anyway, I would encourage people to not only check out the album Brain Junk, but the demos available at least for me i saw them on spotify yeah um, so yeah thank you for that because yeah. nobody's ever promoted that record i mean wow. i never promoted it a record label never promoted it and so um the the demos i decided i could i could just just put them just put them out there yeah and uh you know no no promotion i mean i'm not doing anything from but they're there for posterity sure 
Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so I interrupted your story there. Well, me and Johnny Irene, the Neverbe Brothers, were playing at this little New York gig, and it was just a, a, a little sit-down little venue. There might have been 40 or 50 chairs out there. But they had these lights set up that were right in our faces, and we were sitting there, and we were playing. And at one point during the show, this this lovely figure of a of a human walks in, sits down on the front row, and pulls her hair out of a beret and swings out her hair just like a Clairol shampoo commercial. <laughs> yeah. And like my even in my memory, it's in slow motion. And and the hair is just like going out like that. And she's tall, but I can't see her because these lights are right in front of my face. But I just know she's somebody because of the way the room has has turned towards her and away from us. (laughs) (laughs) And so my friends, Peyton Reed, who happened to be there, who is also the director of the Ant-Man movies. Oh, nice. Yeah, Peyton was at Carolina, wasn't there? He's a a friend. So Peyton and Grady Cooper, who was Grady Cooper's show on TV, The Unicorn. Uh Uh-huh. They were care. They were Broughton boys that went to Carolina in uh-huh. the radio, TV, motion pictures thing. So anyway, awesome. they were there as friends. They were in New York. They were back at the bar. Okay. And so when me and Johnny finished our little show, the lights came up, and it was Uma Thurman sitting there in front. <laughs> and so I went back to the bar and I said to Peyton and Grady, you're not going to believe who was sitting in the front row. And they're like, you're not going to believe who was at the bar. And their story's even better than mine. Wow, okay. Mick Jagger in in incognito with a fake mustache, a fedora, and a double-breasted suit. And months after this event... The National Enquirer ran this, ad, you know, ran this story about Jerry Hall divorcing uh, Mick Jagger because he was chasing Uma Thurman. <laughs> wow! <laughs> so, I've never heard that story. Yeah, and he chased her right to a George right to Huntley a George show. Huntley show. Yeah, I'm just the I'm just the that like is... bubble gum on the sidewalk, man. I'm, no, that no, I mean, is so you know, awesome. Isn't that right? That's that's uh. That's right. That, that is awesome. Um, okay. Just to touch back on the European tour and all of the stresses that were involved with that and coming back and then having to cut another album. Um, when did you, because I don't know the timeline as far as when you decided, you know what, I'm getting married, I'm starting a family. Did that have a lot to do with your transition from the rock star lifestyle and moving on to what you do now, which is real estate? Yeah, that's a great. Uh, that's a great. That that you're you're so you're so on top of it. The when I met Amelia, my wife, I think I was trying to juggle the Connells going to Europe all the time and I was trying to do what I could for brain junk and um, she just wandered into my life one er, early one Saturday morning she was walking her puppy uh, in front of my house and 
I was down there. Um, yeah, I'm 34 years old. I've never been married. And, uh, you know, it's early on a Saturday morning. I see this really cute girl walking by with a dog. And I'm thinking, the, my first thought was, any girl that's up on early on a Saturday morning is my kind of girl, you know? Because uh-huh. I've never been a night owl. I've always been a diurnal sun worshiper you know i like to be up during the day yeah and so she's having trouble getting her puppy so i always carried pocket full of dog biscuits you know to keep my dog in my sphere and so i got her dog come up and i grabbed her dog's collar and she came over and i gave her some i gave her some dog biscuits and when we touched there was this zing it was like a little shock and i was like whoa <laughs> and from that moment on, I oh, was looking cool. for her, and that is you know, so and great. and so yeah, I think at that time, some a door opened for me, and I, I saw, you know, I saw uh, where where I could go, and that was 1996. But you know, leaving the Connells was not going to be an easy thing to do. We formed in let's see, late 1984. I, well, I I think I came in in like December of 1984. Maybe we got started like in January. Darker Days came out in mid-85. Yeah. And there was still more to do. There was still more to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And I don't really know why I felt that way, although I do feel like the record Still Life was the record that kind of came out of uh, that period for me of now being committed to someone, married to someone, and still life was really dedicated to Jennifer. And it took us that amount of time to really sort of realize the effect that our partners had on not only us, but each other. Mm-hmm. And and so then we ended up doing one more little record after Still Life, which was Old School Dropouts, which was when, that was when our label dropped us. And we just had these demos that we made in our rehearsal space. And we just said, what the heck? I mean, we didn't even finish them. Those, song, those songs were largely unfinished. And in fact, uh, you know, the Connells just released... Uh, a little record called Stedman's Wake, which is very good. If you haven't heard it, check it out. Stedman's Wake. I think some of Mike's best writing is on there. I, I love that song. And uh, But they take a couple, I think there's maybe three songs on there. Uh, Gladiator Heart is one of my f- favorite Mike Connell songs, and um, that's on there. And uh, he they, re- they re-recorded it. And, you know, I'm really proud of those guys for doing that. I, I think it's just really great. And Mike Ayers uh, is the guy that filled in for me when I could, when I was missing shows because of my real estate business, because my real estate business started taking center stage in my life, 2000, 2001. And so for the next couple of years, Mike would, Mike Ayers would fill in for me on, you know, a couple of couple of shows here and there and Mike Connell would go over to Mike Ayers' house and we'd sit down and teach him songs and then one day Mike Ayers and I just had that conversation I was like can you do it and he said only if you promise never to come back oh, wow. 
And so I said, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I won't come back. And that was, um, what, 20 years ago now. And he's still there. And I think Mike Ayers is a very important part of that group. I think uh, Mike Connell gives him credit for seeing Stedman's Wake, the song, as being a, you know, a song that you need to keep working on. Mike, I've, I've heard Mike Connell give Mike Ayers some credit for keeping that one going. So, And they still do shows. Um, yeah, they do. It's typically regional. Yeah, they but, do. But yeah, they're still uh, actively out there. But not touring. with me. Yeah. I'm I'm not I'm not up there with them anymore other than in spirit and and I'm fine with that. Okay. Yeah, you know what? I forgot to ask you this story. One more Connell's question. Um you were telling me over lunch how you got to tell the the Long Island, the beach on Long Island story with Doug. You know, it's kind of a <laughs> um it's almost a U2 story because I had seen U2 as a student for the first time at the Carolina Concert for Children. I want to say it was either 82 or 83. And I became an instant fan. I was in awe of them, really. And then we, the Connells bought the cassette for uh, Joshua Tree when we headed out for our first West Coast tour. And it just became such an important soundtrack for that trip. All that God, it's just such a great record. I can't listen to it now without thinking about just riding in that van hmm. uh, out all across the country. And somewhere in that year, I bought this felt sort of like sort of like this uh, cowboy hat, but it was like a stiff brim little thing that kind of looked like Bono's hat at the time. And I was growing my hair out and I needed a hat to keep my hair out of my face. And so I had sort of long hair and I had this hat and I wore it everywhere and it helped me hide the greasy hair from not showering every day that (laughs) band guys have to suffer through. Uh And we were walking across the beach down in Long Beach. We had stopped to see a friend there because we were going to do a show in New York. And and, you know, my normal attire back at the time was like jeans and a black T-shirt. And I was wearing that hat and I had long hair. And we were walking across the beach and we saw these girls. And these girls came up to us and, and they were very excited to see us. And they said, are you guys in a band? <laughs> <laughs> and we were like, why, oh, yes, we are. And, and one of the girls elbowed the other girl, and she said, see, I told you it was you two. Oh, no. And I didn't look a thing like Bono. <laughs> you know, I knew I didn't, but it was it was wonderful. It was, it was that wonderful. Is, yeah. That's so funny. Oh, man. Okay. So music's always been in your blood. You talked about your dad early on. Um, I know you're a big fan of the Beatles. Um, how convenient that you were named George, by the way. So... You still play, right? And you're still... I know that you're hoping to get another album out at some point. I would I would love to. I'm, it's a, a really good friend of mine, Kenny Shore, is releasing a record right now. We go back to the early 80s. He used to be in this band called The Day Room Monitors. And he's a lot like me. He's sort of a troubadour sort of songwriter dude with an acoustic guitar. And Kenny and I were talking the other day, and he was telling me about this new record of his and it just made me 
it just made me feel that aliveness that comes from hearing somebody talk about recording a record and mm-hmm. and, and 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 really really it's like having a child because you you conceive the idea you you sort of like you have self-doubt is a big part of the process yeah. and you go through it and you're and you're working on it and you think man I, I need help and then you go through periods of thinking I don't need help I just need to do it because if there's one person if there's one person that you reach isn't that enough and and I think sometimes when you think about some of the songs that you've written speaking for myself when I think about some of the songs that I've written and how they how they came to me how they were conceived how they were born and how they were recorded and received by audiences I think to myself you know I've still got some of that that trickles down and out and I can still write a song that I can't forget and in the Roy Orbison handbook of what makes a good song Roy Orbison said well what makes a good song is the ones you can't forget and so I've got a few. I was gonna say, I, so you still have some. I still have some. I was, I was, I've lost two brothers. My brother Neil and my brother Wilson have both passed away. And when my brother Wilson passed away in 2020, oh. I had like uh, in in a two week period of time, the dam broke, and I the, there was like nine songs that just like came out of me, and I just I couldn't stop it. It was like. I'd pick up my guitar and I'd just write a song, you know. Wow. And really, uh, to be honest, they're it, it, it's they're a little dark. Mm. They're they're a little because uh, Wilson and I were close. We were very close. And you know the Wilson the Wilson story is such an interesting one, Keith, because we did not agree on politics. In fact, we disagreed on politics, but we were so, we managed to be so close. And I've often thought that the power of that relationship, that ability to move on, is symbolic for me in many ways and how I digest what's the troubling place that we find ourselves in in this country right now. I think to myself, I would never go to war with my brother. He was just too important to me. And so there's a song, there's a song that that I have about him that's just, um, it's just, and it just, to me, it just kind of nailed him. It just like, boom, I think I just got it. And I think Wilson would have been, I think Wilson would be really happy that that was what came out. Because, you know, we we were, Wilson and I spent a lot of time during his illness and, and his decline. He had glioblastoma, which is a very fast growing brain cancer that you really can't stop it man i am sorry for your losses man i being an only child i cannot put myself in your place but i can't imagine losing a sibling um very sorry about that thank you yeah so you have been married to amelia for 25 years that's right congratulations to both of you you have three sons aged 13 to 23 that's right that is and you've already mentioned uh at least one of your sons is into music 
So they, they all are in. They're music. on the, Yeah. Do, they, do you guys ever play together then? Or you know, we. It's funny. We. I don't think we. I don't think we can really play together that well. <laughs> we have a such a different um, sense of. My kids are better musicians than I am. They're more. Uh, they started their music training early, and okay. I was completely self-taught. Okay, but correct me if I'm wrong. You can play a twelve-string guitar, right? I mean, you did, what, did I see some? You and Mike Connell were both playing twelve-string guitars at the same time. We like, were. Are there songs where I would be able to hear? All, well, pretty much all of Darker Days, we were both playing Rickenbacker wow. 12 strings. Yeah. Wow, wow. Yeah. So, yes, you're, you're very humble, and, and I don't doubt that your kids are better musicians than, than you are, <laughs> but, but <laughs> my, know, po- it sounds, <laughs> my point is, you know, like, what kind of music do they typically play? Is it just a different genre? Do you ever catch them listening to... Connell stuff. Well, my old, my <laughs> oldest son, my oldest son Sam, has historically been more um, a student of what I did. I think he early on, when he became a teenager, he he paid attention to the Connells and and would ask me questions about it and would would he noticed hmm. his little brother Aaron was too busy doing what his big brother Sam was doing, so. Aaron, I think, was sort of free of having to sort of be under that umbrella. You know what I'm saying? Uh So Aaron is more of a jazz uh, player, I would say. I think his sensibilities are more adventurous with chord changes, and his his music vernacular is just so far above anything I can comprehend. And then there's David, and David is 13, and... David can flat out play the bass trombone. I mean, he just picked that sucker up. And it takes a lot of gut power to uh, blow a bass trombone. You know, uh, so, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 yeah, I probably didn't say that right, that they're better musicians because they would say that's, they would say that's uh, it, an idiotic thing to say. But, <laughs> but there is something that keeps us from being really easy. Uh, I would love. I would love to. Um, you know, like me and my brother Roy sit around and play John Prine songs. We can we can play John Prine songs all day long. Uh, in fact, Roy and I are working on our set list called you know sing along songs, and like you know like that Bob Dylan song. Uh, everybody must get stoned. You know, everybody knows that song. <laughs> yeah. You know. If we're starting with that, and we know John Prine's Paradise and Mike Cross's El Maturl, you know, we've got these songs that we can do. I don't have that with my kids. I don't have that set list of things that we can do, but doesn't mean we won't one day. Very good. Well, I look forward to that. <laughs> so I have met your awesome golden retriever puppy, Danny. I haven't seen your cat named Piper. Is is Piper just hiding out? She somewhere? might be sitting right there for all I know. Mm-hmm. Is she? No. That's her seat, by the way. Really? Oh, I've been. Yeah, is it still warm? No, let me, uh, let me move my uh, phone. My phone was blocking that, that well, spot. Yeah, I don't know where Piper is. <laughs> okay, but, uh, all right. Yeah, Danny's, um, Danny was glad to meet you. Yeah. 
<laughs> I saw you trying to put him in your bag. So you didn't take him home. I didn't you? know you saw that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I know that um, when it comes to hobbies, you like to go out and ride your bike. Mm-hmm. Uh, Raleigh seems to be a, a bike friendly town. Very. Yeah. Please tell me you're not one of those uh, bicyclists that block traffic, right? <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a you have a bike lane, right? Yeah, in is fact, that good enough for you? <laughs> yeah, it's good enough for me. I, I, you know, I'm too chicken to ride around cars, so I go out to Umstead Park. There's a big greenway system here that takes you off the road. Okay. Last book you read was On the Way to Birdland. Yeah, I did a book review yeah, for book, it. Yeah, so I mean, you wrote it for uh, is it, is it called Our State Magazine? Yeah, is, yeah. I wrote a wrote a uh, you're had, a published author. I'm a published author. <laughs> yeah, and I wrote an article for Our State uh, on uh, the return of live music, and it was just talking about the different venues in North Carolina where live music has come back, and it was so much fun writing that article. I mean, it was just you know put a lot of research into it, trying to figure out. Who's out there? What's going on? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's really cool. That is cool. And you had made an Atticus Finch uh, reference earlier. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird, your favorite book uh, of all time? You know, when you when you ask that question, I think to myself, what you know, you could probably answer that in so many different ways. That yeah, that would probably be the one that I've. <laughs> there's a lot of great it's, books it's out there. It's the only that, book I've read twice, George. Really? Yeah. Isn't that yeah. something? Yeah. And, and, and I don't read fiction. So there you go. Yeah. So for what that's worth. Um, I love that your favorite app is Google Maps. I was just thinking this the other day. It's like, how did we exist before GPS? How, oh, I, man, I how, don't know. How, how was that a thing? Because I I mean, I was a geek with the paper maps and writing, drawing myself maps to get to places, stuff like that. I mean, those days are gone. Now you just put an address in your phone and you get there. But I specifically remember my grandmother, who uh, a previous episode of this podcast, Nana, my gift when I moved to New York from Charleston, South Carolina back in 2009, the big gift she wanted to buy me was a GPS for my car. And I remember her getting that for me and me thinking, wow, this is really cool. You know, I just don't know that I'll really use it. I would have never found my way to Newark, New Jersey on that first drive up there without it. And and it hit me way back then. It's like, I would not have gotten here with a paper map. I just would not have gotten here. And kids today, you put a map in front of them, they, it might as well be a foreign language. Yeah. Yeah. This and, is a guy that come in handy, by the way, as a real estate agent, GPS. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And and um, those old maps, you know, the, the big book maps, our, when we used to travel all over the country, our tour manager, Jimmy Descant, if we had a great experience in a restaurant, Jimmy would write, you know, in Kansas City, he would, you know, he would make a little note in the side on the Kansas or the Missouri map, depending on what Kansas City you're in, (laughs) he'd make a note that this is a great restaurant, you know. And so I'm sure he still has that book. Oh, wow. And of course, what was wrong with that book was, you know, he had to replace it every couple of years because they get updated. Worn out too. Yeah. And updated. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. And get worn out too. Yeah. So uh, yeah, you know, back in the old days, uh, you know, those um, those old maps would come in handy. When you did transition away from the rock band lifestyle, which, by the way, uh, lead guitarist, I don't know that I mentioned that early on, so shame on me, 
why did you choose to get into real estate instead of something more along the lines of your college degree? Ah, well, the world was a very different place. Uh, I, I did consider going back into biostat, hmm. biostatistics. I, I would have been in a whole new era, though, because the, the, uh, I would have had to go back to school. Okay. Yeah. I did, I did want to be a school teacher. I, I did a little bit of research, and honest, quite honestly, I figured out that there was going to be no way to support a family on a teacher's salary. Yeah. And so I couldn't do that. And my wife said, well, you know, you love houses. And, you know, uh, I got my real estate license and actually really enjoyed the classes. And to be honest with you, it's, it's been a perfect fit. Cool. And, and, and the thing about real estate for me has, has always been um, the problem-solving aspect of it. You know, someone comes to you, they want a house. They've probably been looking online or, or they've been talking to other people perhaps or maybe they've just started their search, but wherever they are in the process, the reason they're talking to me is they're having a little problem with it. Huh. And so what I do is I help solve that problem. And a lot of times it's just all they need is just to just get the ball rolling. Just get out there and start looking. And it's really fun. And, you know, I'm not a shopper. I don't like to go shopping, um, but I love going house shopping mm -hmm. because – while people are walking around the house looking to see if their dining room table is going to fit in the dining room, I'm walking around looking for cracks up in the walls like that one there. Don't look. <laughs> Don't look. And, you know. and This and, is an awesome house. What year was your house built? 37. 1937. Oh, oh. Yeah. So cool. Yeah, I love this house. Thank yeah. you. Absolutely. So, okay. And, and I can tell. I can just tell that, that well, you would have made a good teacher i can see how you're a natural fit for the personability of a real estate agent and never mind your just love for homes in general so i mean this is a perfect uh feels weird to say second career for you but you know yeah. effectively it is you know yeah uh all right so your survival needs are met but you're not coming back to earth you find yourself on Mars of all places. Okay, so so in other words, we're we're, we're going with the premise that you have oxygen, okay, and, okay. and water and all that good <laughs> stuff. So you're going to take five uh, items with you. I've recently, uh, you know, tinkered with this question, so so this is kind of new territory for me here. Uh, so thanks for playing along. You're going to take your bike. I guess we're going to assume that gravity's working out for us there. Uh, your acoustic guitar, pencil and paper, a warm coat. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, do you think that we'll ever see humans actually get to Mars? Because it, it seems like we can't even get back to the moon. Wait, <laughs> I thought Matt Damon was our... In, wait. Sorry, uh, no, Matt wasn't Damon. There, wasn't there <laughs> the Martian? Yeah, the Martian, the yeah. Yeah. Uh, Man, that's a that's a tough one. I'm sure we'll make it to Mars. Yeah, I mean they found water there. I'm sure we'll we'll figure out a way. I mean, if you've got H2O, you can get hydrogen, right? Mm -hmm. And think of all that you can do with hydrogen. Okay. You can do what? Think of what you can do with oxygen. So you you figure out a way to um, split those uh, water molecules uh -huh. and and. You can make power and, yeah. and breathable air. Okay, so earlier, when you were talking about the recording studio uh, that was haunted, yeah, right. 
Um, I should have circled back to an experience you had in college. Do you recall, um, I guess you were walking back from the dining hall in the dark, uh, oh, December yeah. 1980, just after John Lennon had been yeah, shot. Yeah, yeah. What happened then? Yeah, so you know, this is a long time ago, and I was 18 years old, and over the years, in my mind, when I've, when I've thought about what happened to me in the woods that night, it, it sort of blends in with, a, with another story that happened right around that same time. Right in front of me, uh, this girl uh, collapsed on the ground and started having a seizure. And uh, somebody, I was the first person on the scene, and, and it was right at dusk. We had just left the dining hall, and everybody came up, and we started piling our coats everybody took their coats off because she's on the ground the ground's really cold and she's having a seizure and she's it's a violent one Mm. and so we started piling i was the first one there so i was the first one to put my coat on her and there was a mound of coats on her the the medics got there we're we're like all kind of standing off trying to give her some privacy and the medics and they get her in the ambulance and they take her away and it took about an hour and i'm standing out there and because i gotta get my coat Mm -hmm. and there were these people that were in this shared experience so we were talking well not long after that there's a shortcut that you could take that would take you through the woods down the Holzhauser dorm at UNC Charlotte. And I used to pop down that hill and run down through the woods. It was like a really steep hill where probably in the original development, they had pushed a mound of dirt up there and you just like run down this hill and you could just run right through the woods. I found out my brother Neil had called me and said, did you hear what happened? And I was like, no. And Neil called me up and said, John Lennon was shot and killed. I was like, no, no. John Lennon was shot and killed. And that whole day was just like going to class and just like, I can't go to school. John Lennon's been shot and killed by some random dude. And we didn't know anything about it yet. And that night, it was about 5.30, it was December, so it was getting dark. Might have been like six, because it was dark. I took the shortcut, and I was going down that hill and into the woods. And I just remember I was really preoccupied with my feelings about John Lennon. But I was still kind of affected by this girl who had, who had collapsed uh, days before on the ground, and I got down in the woods and I had this supernatural, I don't, I, I mean, I can't think of another way to describe it. My hair just went up on my back and, and on my head. And, and I just had this incredibly strong feeling that there was something really bad getting ready to happen to me, that there was something really close, dangerous coming at me. And I hit the, I hit the gas. And when I popped out of the woods at the first light there, I got well into the light and I got, I got to the door of Holzhauser dorm and I turned around and I looked back to the woods and I, I thought, ah, that's silly. That's just childish. I was just afraid of the dark, but it, there was something there. Mm. I, I mean, 
in in all my life, I have never there was this just strong feeling that of danger. And and believe me, in my life there's been times when danger happened that I didn't sense. Hmm. So I don't feel like I have a really strong sense of all danger. That's what popped into my head as as a as an event in my life that made me sort of think about that that time in your life where you just you don't think about it, you just trust it. Right. And you just run. You just run. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that we will never fully understand and so many people experiencing inexplicable things. Yeah. And uh, it sounds like you had, did you ever go take that shortcut again after that or did you avoid? I did. I think I even went looking for what it was. I ended up deciding that it was probably a coyote or a wolf or something that was out in the woods Mm. that I had probably, I had probably run up on. There was, there was something that my spidey sense. Yeah. And I think I went back into the woods, but next time I went through making noise, mm-hmm. you know, singing, clanging. Yeah. Carrying a knife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your favorite comfort food is fried chicken, which I'm going to use to try to convince you because, um, you know, we need to get you to Dallas at some point, And there's a place called Babe's Fried Chicken. Ooh. And I think you might uh, Ooh. might enjoy it. Yeah, you know? that might get so, me there. Yeah. Okay, so you've actually crossed paths with some celebrities in your life. Um, you mentioned Uma Thurman and Mick Jagger Incognito. Um, Matt Dillon? Oh, yeah. Where was that? Again in New York. We had played at the Beacon Theater. And below the Beacon Theater, the green room, quote, unquote, was the Chinese restaurant in the basement. (laughs) And so way, 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 you know, before the show and after the show is where you go. Right. And we were we were on tour with the replacements. And so we were sharing this space with the replacements and they were notoriously interested in keeping that space free of people they want they wanted it to be just a band space where you could walk around and do the noises you need to make and do the machinations that you need to do before a show or or lay down on the couch or whatever without you know uh, interaction with other people but after the show the green room becomes something different and that night uh after the show uh doug mcmillan who's the singer of the connells and i were were down there with our elbows on the bar and Matt Dillon, the actor, not the sheriff, Matt <laughs> Dillon, the actor comes up and we, we were promote, we must've been promoting ring at the time because we had, a um, wait a minute. Cause we were talking about get a gun. So we must've been doing one simple word. The album, one simple word has a, has a song called get a gun. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a song uh, it's metaphorically uh, get a gun, get a gun. We're losing altitude, uh, and Matt loved that song, and so Matt comes up to me and Doug, and he says, um, "I want to, I want to make a video for you guys." And back in those days, you know, MTV was still fairly young, and and Hollywood was starting to embrace it. So you were starting to see. Uh, bigger names doing music videos. And so Doug and I were like, well, yeah, Matt, I mean, that would be awesome. Of course, it would be really cool. 
And so Matt Dillon was like, he was going into his mind, you know, and he was, he was, he, this is what he said. He said, he said, get a gun, get a gun is, get a gun. <laughs> and, and Doug and I looked at each other and we were like, you're right. You're right. It is. It is. And, and that was about as far as we got in that. But, you know, he was in some great movies. And at one point, these two really attractive young girls just kind of come walking up. Keep in mind, we're in a Chinese restaurant underground down in um, around Beacon Theater, you know. And he's too real. I don't know how those girls got in. There's not a lot of people there. They were extremely attractive. And they walk up to us. Doug and I are smart enough to know they're not, they're not there to talk to me and Doug. <laughs> and so Matt Dillon is standing there, and he won't look at them. He turns away from them. He's smoking a cigar. That's what guys used to do back then. And he's smoking this cigar, you know, and he's kind of got his elbows up on the bar, and he's turned away from them. And, and, they're, and they're looking at him, and they go, they go, excuse me, Mr. Dillon. Can can we just get your autograph? <laughs> and he won't he won't even look at him. What? And so I tap Matt Dillon on the shoulder. I don't I don't know him. And I go, hey Matt, there, there's these two cute girls that just want your autograph. And he goes, I don't want to talk to them. <laughs> and we go, well, you know, if we're wasting time here. If you'll just like sign their autograph, they'll you know they'll go away because they're saying that's all they want. Uh-huh. And so they go. They, they, you know, so he turns around and they go, can you say, let's do it for Johnny? Oh, no. (laughs) And so Matt Dillon, he just becomes, oh, he just like this darkness. And we don't know if it's all an act. Right. It's got to be an act. Right. Oh, no. I'm telling this story and even I'm thinking this is an act. But... he was like he he was one of those guys that seemed to value his space and mm-hmm. his time. He's off the clock. He's at a closed party, and uh, he didn't appreciate it. But I, I I just couldn't I could not believe. Did the girls just leave then? They just left. Wow. And I was like, well, Doug and I just looked at each other like, yeah. So he's the man. I know that. There was a video made for Get a Gun. Was yeah. he the one that made that? No. no. Okay. No, he didn't get to it. All right. Uh, John Prine. Uh, Love him. Okay. You met him. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I brought John Prine. So Get a Gun. Again, Get a Gun. We had our, our you know, T-shirts and... And we were... We had boxer underwear as our swag, you know. And our brilliant... Swag designers, Tannis Root, Bill Mooney, um, designed this pair of underwear with a holster, like a Roy Rogers holster with a gun and the Connells. Uh-huh. And, and so when you put your underwear on, it looked like you had this white underwear with a red holster. So you, you know, you could say, you could, so. Where do you get a pair of these, man? Yeah, they need to reissue them. But anyway, I, when I went to meet uh, John Prine, I brought him a pair of underwear. And so he uh, came out and did the show. I saw I went back in his green green room, met Nancy Griffith and John Prime, went out, watched the show, got great seats, and uh, we were just like four rows back. So I'm looking right up. I mean, he's just right there. 
And, and he said, oh, I, met, I, I met a new friend tonight. This is during the show. Met a new friend tonight. Uh, yeah, uh, he brought me a pair of underwear. And, um, oh, no. and I'm wearing them. Oh, he said, yeah, I've got them on. And he just looked at me. He said, I appreciate it. And that was about all he said. You know, he went in there and did Sam Stone was alone. And I'm just thinking, ah, oh, this is great. And later that night after the show, got to go hang out with my man, John Prime. Oh, cool, man. Very just a closed little party, drinking, um, drinking drinks, smoking cigarettes, talking about anything and everything. It was one of my greatest, greatest nights ever. You know, and my wife... Um she saw you guys uh, and got to hang out with the Connells back in December of 1996 at the House of Blues in Los Angeles. Cool. Now, the cool part about that, obviously, it was a great experience for her. You guys were so nice. But um, I got to listen to that concert. It was the first concert that I had ever heard was streaming on the internet. Huh. I mean, we're talking early days of streaming wow and it was a um a friend of mine zach reimer an earlier episode of at the mic who had set up i mean he was the only guy on our dorm floor who had this ability really with his and so i had to go and sit at his computer with a pair of headphones to listen to one of the first streamed concerts on the internet and it was you guys december 1996 so uh anyway that that's what was coming to mind there when you were talking about your experience with john prine um it's just so cool when you and your wife was there yeah yeah because she was living in la at the time wow so carrie uh an Another earlier episode of uh, At The Mic. Yeah. So anyhow, that's just what occurred to me. I saw you guys for the first time. I went um, the Ranch Bowl in Omaha. Yeah. I don't know if that yeah, rings a bell yeah, at all. Man, we loved it. Yeah, yeah. So we loved it. That would have been... Uh, it's a bowling alley mm-hmm. and a nightclub. <laughs> yeah. Come on, man. What's not to love? That's awesome. Yeah. I remember I drove up from Lincoln. I was like, yeah. I'm going to see this band. And by the way... At that Los Angeles show, that day, David Connell and I rode down the elevator with Little Richard. Oh, wow. And Little Richard is on the, we're, we're coming down because he lives, he lived in that hotel right across the street oh. from the venue. And, and David grew up in Macon, Georgia, as did Little Richard. Mm-hmm. So Little Richard walks on, on the elevator. And let me tell you, he, He's a big guy. Hmm. He's there. There's a there's and you're on an elevator with Little Richard. He's the biggest guy on the elevator. I mean, he's got a presence about him. And it was just him. No, he had uh, two guys with him, and it was just me and David. So it was five people on this elevator. Uh And David goes, um, "Hey, Mr. Richard, I'm David Connell, and you and I have something in common." He goes, "What would that be?" And (laughs) And David said, well, I grew up in Macon, Georgia. And he went, what? No, 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 he didn't. But, 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 you know, he, but he was, he was electric, man. He was just yeah. like, he got right up in your face when he talked to you. And it was just like, and I think we got a hug from wow, him. Oh, that's cool. But, you know, we were just, I mean, he, he knew, he knew that we knew that he was, a god uh-huh. you know i mean he just knew he knew that we knew yeah we were on to him man that's cool man and he's like so y'all in a band and he's like yeah we're playing across the street tonight and he's like man hope y'all have a good i'll try to get down there but i don't know if we're going to have time because we got but we might 
<laughs> you know, and he, that's the way he was. He was pure, pure did you, electricity. Did you spend the whole evening just scanning the crowd? Is little Richard here? We knew he wasn't there. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, again, he's bigger than Uma Thurman. <laughs> Everybody, we, you know, you don't want little Richard that's to right. come to your show. Yeah. Uh, Janine Garofalo? Janine Garofalo, uh -huh. yeah. How'd that go? Oh, that was fun. I uh -huh. mean, there, there was Doug. Doug had been in this movie called Bandwagon, and he was which in which I've never seen. I can never find that oh, movie. It's, it's on YouTube. He plays like a tour manager, right? Plays a tour manager. Okay, yeah, it's on YouTube. Linus okay. something, and uh, and and Doug is in that in this movie with Kevin Corrigan, and Kevin shows up to one of our one of our like Wednesday night shows wherever we were. Fort Collins, Colorado or something, you know, in a small little venue. And he shows up with he's on on location shooting, um, you know, scenes for a movie he's in with Janine Garofalo. And again, I find myself with my elbows on a bar with Doug and Janine. And, and in this case, it's Janine Garofalo and Kevin Corgan. And Janine was so funny. Hmm. I mean, she's really just a, a an incredibly quick witted individual and she was sizing things up i just remember how masterfully she sized things up and she was a real observer of people and you know that's what you do you just what you end up doing is you end up just kind of like finding yourself in a situation and what what you end up doing is just looking around at your surroundings and saying look at where we are we're all really far from home you know where did you meet mick fleetwood Oh, man, I forgot about Mick Fleetwood. Yeah, we were uh, doing the Lorelei Festival in Germany, which is this beautiful setting. It's um, like Hitler built one of these um, summer palaces up in the up in the mountains, you know, mm. and, you know, there's like train track across the river and you can see a train and the smoke and everything. And we did this festival there. It's a... Um, you know, there's there's hippies from all over the world around there selling their jewelry and incense and <laughs> people getting their 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 zen on, you know, boogieing down. And it's um, uh, Mike and the Mechanics, huh. Fleetwood Mac, the Connells. Uh, there was a band from Germany that was huge, Slaughterhouse. Uh, oh, Fury and the Slaughterhouse. Yeah, a bunch of bands. So it's like Connells were playing, and again. We had the number one hit. Did I say yet that we had the number one hit? And we're there. And so we're, uh, David Connell and I go in the bathroom, which is just a, a mobile home unit bathroom thingy where, you know, you walk up some stairs, you walk in, there's some toilets mm -hmm. and some sinks in there. And David and I are in there taking a leak and we're just talking like we normally would. <laughs> And uh, all of a sudden, there's this noise from one of the stalls. Oh, no. And Mick Fleetwood stands up. You know he's about six foot eight? Oh, gosh. He's huge. Wow. And he's got this big red suit that he's putting on that is an electronic drum kit suit. And so he, he walked out. And so he was putting it on. And he was telling me and David, he's like, I've got this really cool suit that I can play the drums on. So the, oh the toms goodness. the toms are here and I can play like cymbals here. That must be and, impossible. And I've got, you know, my my floor toms are up here and my kick drum is down here and my snare is here. 
and he's got all this stuff and he and he and he can play this suit and he can play a drum kit and so when Fleetwood Mac came out to play he walks out on stage like the big spider man that he is playing this this drum kit and at the time nobody had ever seen anything like this before but you know that yeah. is, and he wasn't wired to anything. It was radio. It was you know he had a. That must have taken a lot of practice to try to learn where all the drums were on that. I thing. didn't say it was great. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's I didn't a good say point. it was great. You didn't. That's true. Hey, let's give a shout out to your ninety-eight-year-old mother. Oh yeah. Um, she, you've talked about her before, um, just in conversations with me. Sounds like a sweetheart, and I just, I just wanted to you know take a moment to say hello to her. Yeah. On this. And uh, so if you wanted to speak to her, but um, I know that if you could go back in history, you'd like to meet your grandfather. Is that your mom's father or the other side? Or? Well, her her grandfather um, was one of the guys I was named for. His name was Harris Greenlee Ray. I was named George Harris Huntley when I was born, named after my two great grandfathers. And and he was just the the he was the legend that everybody knew about when when I was growing up. My grandfather, it was my my mother's father's father. Mm -hmm. And um, I just grew up just hearing all these great stories about all these people. You know, they were farmers. They were they were men that figured out how to uh, have a they set up a sawmill. Uh, when cotton was king, they grew cotton. When they needed corn for their livestock, they grew corn. You know, they had multiple gardens over by the house. My grandpa had a garden down in the field. They had, they had fruit trees. They, they just lived on this farm that my brothers and my sister and I would go down there in the summer. And, you know, it was the house that my great-grandfather had essentially built for his family my grandfather was born there my mother was born there and we just grew up going down there and you know they were farmers they they had um a lot of kids my mother was one was one of 10 children and to this day we are still very very close and when we get together there's over 100 people and we get together for Thanksgiving and the 4th of July. Mm -hmm. And not everybody, of course, but, uh, you know, it's a big gathering when we get together. And uh, we're still very, very close. And, yeah, uh, my mom is 98, and she's just a uh, – we survived – my dad died when I was 13. Oh. And so my mom and I, we kind of grew up together. You know, she. I watched her blossom after Daddy died. You know, there's a lot, a lot of times there's good that comes out of something bad, and my mom just blossomed. I mean, she just she learned how to balance the. I mean, little things, yeah. the ordinary things right. like balancing checkbook and managing the affairs and managing her five children, and and consequently, the the confidence and the you know she became an elder in the church like women weren't elders in the church you know mm -hmm. i mean but she did it quietly and she did it with her own brand of strength and and you know and i just watched her i've just watched her forever uh 
And to, to this day, when we get together, it's a very affectionate relationship that's based on mutual respect for each other. She loves what the Connells did. I mean, because she got a lot of mileage out of that. Uh, you know, she really did. She got a lot of mileage out of that. When she would chaperone teenagers, you know, with church group stuff, they and they figured out that her son was in, in a rock band and, you know, they wanted to be in her car, you know. Nice. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, shout so, out to Virginia Huntley there. Thank all right. That. Absolutely. So as you were talking about uh, some of your family history there, um, the song 1934 off of the Connell's first album came to mind. Um, can you can, can you just for my own curiosity sake, tell me a little bit about that story, 1934? So my Aunt Betsy who's my mom's little sister, is one of the family historians. And she told me this very fascinating story one time. Uh, Betsy Blankenship told me that uh, during the Civil War, uh, my, uh, what would probably be like a great, great, great something or other, great, great, great grandmother uh, was an older woman. And there was some family silver that she buried to hide from the Yankees who were coming this way. Right. Because, you know, we knew what they did. In they knew what was going on in Atlanta, mm -hmm. and they they felt like they were coming back. There was, uh, on the back end, you know, word had gotten to the country folk. And where was the house located? Was it in South This Georgia? was in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina. North, oh, okay, okay. Down around near Charlotte. Uh-huh. And so she word came came that that there was marauders, a gang of marauders were coming, and so she started hiding stuff, and she didn't tell anybody where she hid it, and mm. she was an old lady, mm. and so as the war ended, and you know I don't know how many years it took for people to kind of get over it. She forgot where they're she not over it. it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're not over it. I'm from the south. I know this to be true. <laughs> well, she didn't know where it was, and so oh, no. one of her heirs, who was my um, one of my, let me see, my great uncle Calvin Ray, who was a veterinarian, dedicated a large part of his life to trying to find it, the oh. family silver. He dug up the backyard. You know, looking for it. Well, in the 1930s, they took up the floorboards in the kitchen floor to put plumbing in, plumbing or electricity, one or the other. And they pulled up these floorboards and they're like, hey, what's this? Mm -hmm. And they found this box of silver. And um, was the relative who had been looking for it all this time still would, around? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Nice. Yeah, he's still, yeah, I know. What was a wonderful gesture on his part, because there's, again, it's a really big family. He just split it up and gave it all away. I think to my mom still has a spoon from that collection. I'm not really sure about how all that dissemination mm -hmm. took place, but, you know, in that song, I was attempting in eight lines or less to tell that story. Right. So I'm. Really, I think what I was writing a song about was probably something a little bit different, but I, I was trying to use that story. Um, I'm still not sure what I meant by I don't know if I care anymore. Maybe it's um, 
you know, the silver's hidden under the floor. It's it's been there since the Civil War. Yeah. But I'll be out by nineteen thirty four, which go. was just a twist on on that. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And that's what you do with so many of the songs you write is I mean, you're a storyteller. I mean, it's so easy to pinpoint a George song on the album, even if it was someone else singing it. You know what I'm saying? Because you tell a story with your songs, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, um, okay, a couple more questions. You've been so gracious with your time, and uh, we will wrap this up here. But uh, I love this. Your most embarrassing moment is any time you hear your voice in a recording, then you're not going to want to listen to this no. interview <laughs> because that's what this has been. Um do you want to delve deeper into your answer um, on any regrets you'd care to share? And your answer was not standing up to BS sooner uh, in your life. Not standing up. What did I say? You said uh, not standing up to the BS sooner uh, in your life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, this has been a lifelong, lifelong thing for me. I, I think I, many times have I looked over my shoulder and wished that I had been man enough to stand there and own the moment and say what I really thought. Mm. And yet, at the same time, I don't think it was my calling. I think I would have, I think I would have done it if it had been my calling to be outspoken, strong, or decisive. Whatever it is that makes those leaders do that. I never was a leader in that way that in the, the, the cycle of BS that we all witness in our lives, mm-hmm. sometimes we have regrets that we didn't say something. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm 60 years old now, and I'm at a point in my life where I, I recognize that it's all gravy from here out. The, the men in the Huntley family are not known for being long livers. Mm. And so uh, I'm living my life now. I'm sort of committed to this sort of, it's all gravy. And what is gravy? But living your life more intentionally and more honestly. And uh, so I think that's why I answered that question that way, is that maybe now I'll, I'll be a little more able to, you know, yeah. You, what do I got to lose? Yeah. What? Yeah. What do you got to lose? Yeah. Um, okay. Bucket list. I love this. You want to record another album, and I hope that you will tell me as soon as you do, um, because Thank you. yeah, you've got a lot of songs you got to get recorded. Were you going to hopefully do something with Peel, the uh, oh drummer? I would, lo- I would love to do something with Peel, but it's going to require a little magic because Peel is on a national tour with the Velt. Right now, Danny and Daniel Chavis and Peel, those guys are out there traveling right mm. now. And in fact, they just met Mark Burgess, which was a, a really a big guy from this band called the Chameleons UK when, when we were all growing up. They're out there doing it. I would love to play with Peel again. I think um, there was, there was all, I always felt a, com- a musical camaraderie. But I don't know. I I don't know if that's in the cards. If if it's ever in the cards, it would be wonderful. Okay, your Amazon card's got uh, pet smell remover. Has uh, been having some problems with Danny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, he's man. a ball of energy. Oh, he's he's. <laughs> but you know he he's pretty. He's pretty. He's pretty good dog. Yeah, he's a sweetheart. He's a sweetheart. And you have um, uh, recently um, put your like I mentioned earlier the I guess outtakes um, the demos uh, from Brain Junk uh, available on Spotify. I guess search under George Huntley. Yeah. And you will find them there. And oh, you want to know something interesting? Of course. There's another George Huntley out there. And Did you tell him from, you were here first? Uh, we're, we're almost exactly the same age. Whoa. So we're, I can't tell him that I was here first. <laughs> but he's from Indianapolis. We've talked on the phone. Oh. But he got to George Huntley, the name, first on Spotify. Oh, and no. he makes all these records and they're out there, but they're not me. No. And they're very different than me. And so what's and, the best way to search for you under well, maybe you just have to junk? sort of know a little bit about what I look like and know that. Um, but it's weird. I, I don't I don't know it. But um, but he what's what makes it even worse is one of my sons, Sam, found out that this George Huntley was inadvertently using my picture Uh on inadvertently yeah i don't know how it happened but when i talked to george about it george said i really don't know how that happened but there's a he took a he took a photo or somebody did in his camp took a a snapshot of the connells narrowed in on me and it and it synced up to him and he says it's by accident he couldn't figure out a way to undo it oh my god and i'm not sure it's ever really been undone because you don't just dial 1-800-SPOTIFY and right. she goes, Spotify, can I help you? It ain't like that, no. I mean, I know this is... That's me. This is you. So if you look under George Huntley, is this the other George Huntley right here? Yeah, there okay, he is. So, all right, so you need the George Huntley with the long hair <laughs> and uh, not not the guy with short hair and glasses. Yeah. So. But uh, that is that is interesting. That's well, he's fun. a really nice guy. We've had great phone conversations and all, but we're <laughs> two different flavors at the ice cream store. How did that first call go? Did you see Cam out and be like, bro, that's me? Yeah, that was actually it. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground here. Um, anything that you think we need to uh, cover, or have we pretty much done it at all? Well, do your listeners know... What an awesome dude you are. <laughs> okay. I mean, thank you. You know, You're very I, kind. I would think that it would be very interesting to have somebody interview you for this program. <laughs> Many one day. guests have uh, have asked for that, so I don't know. Because just in my short time uh, knowing you, I always find you to be. Uh, you have a, a a sense of what is concise and cogent and succinct uh-huh. in your in the way that you tell a story you've never heard me tell a joke then because i've bombed oh, those bomb all the time. oh i can't oh, yeah. I, they take forever and they're not even funny by the time i get to the end but, but thank the you way, for this. the way you told your story when i was asking you about your story today the way you told your story was like and you you painted it in such a way that i think everybody would like hearing it and mm-hmm. could relate to that feeling of when things just seemed like they kind of came to you. Yeah, but uh, no, it's been a pleasure talking with you and getting to know you, George, and uh, thanks for opening your home up to me quite literally, man. Thanks so much for being a part. Appreciate it. It was such a thrill for me to sit down 
with George in his home, spend the day with him. And oh, big thanks to George for uh, treating me to lunch and some excellent Carolina barbecue while I was in town. Uh, So grateful that he could make the time for a conversation and so grateful that you could as well. And hopefully you'll be able to join us next week when I sit down with a friend of mine, Krista McIntyre, who, man, she has seen a lot and uh, she has a story to tell. Hope you'll join us for that. Until then, if you feel we've earned it, I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review this podcast. Give us five stars, please, over at Apple iTunes or Spotify. Feel free to drop a note our way through the website at themikeshow.com. That's at themikeshow.com. And don't forget the YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash at the mic with Keith. YouTube.com slash at the mic with Keith. You never know what's going to show up over there. So be sure to not only subscribe, but click that bell so you get the notifications when something posts. Please also take a moment to share. Just pick, you can pick out one episode. I Why not this one? Pick out one episode and share with someone in your world as we look to grow this audience. And uh, we can only do that with your help. And that's the truth. So thank you very much for sharing. Well, until we do sit down again, I hope above all else that you will go be free. And thank you for listening. This has been At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Head to atthemikeshow.com for archived episodes, sponsor information, and ways to connect.